So good evening. I'm glad Brendan said what he said about next month's Theology on Tap because being obedient to our shepherd, uh, we're going to set the bar at a high enough, low enough level such that Bishop Burbage can easily step over. <laughs> uh, let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. God our Father, we gather as humble servants with hearts of gratitude for your infinite love and mercy, for the gift of your Son's salvation, for our Catholic faith, and for living in this great country and this faithful diocese. On this catastrophic day in our history, we implore you to grant everlasting peace to those souls whose lives were taken, comfort to their families, and mercy to those who chose evil. Eternal rest granted to their suffering souls, O Lord, and let perpetual life shine upon them. So it's a privilege for us to share the evening with you, and more importantly, for us to be able to share with you our insights and some of our perspectives on the mysteries of God's providence. And we'll do so by talking about three vignettes. Our experiences on 9-11, the heartfelt story of a Korean War widow, and our vocation and God's central role in that. Can you guys hear me? I just want to make sure. He's that loud voice. All right. <laughs> okay, so what I want to do first off is I just want to tell you a little bit more about ourselves. Um, besides being in love with Kelly for over 33 years, Kelly's also, uh, I really enjoyed being with him, and he's just my best friend. Um, he's from Hawaii. I'm from New Mexico. We were very uh, blessed to have spent our very last in the military in Hawaii for three years. So I used to be a mountain girl, not anymore. I'm now a water girl because of Hawaii. But anyway, it's a wonderful way to end up 34 years. And as Brendan mentioned, he just started working at the Pentagon at a new job as a civilian. So it's a, a new change for, for us here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. God created the universe in a state of dream. We call divine providence the, dis the dispositions by which he guides his creation toward the ultimate perfection yet to be attained. By his providence, God protects and governs all things which he has made, ordering all things well, even those which are yet to come to existence the free will and action of his creatures. So as it did, was it for most Americans, September 11, 2001 was a typical Tuesday for us. I was working at the Pentagon, and that morning I drove into the Pentagon, we had our staff meeting, and right about the time the staff meeting was ending, somebody said there was an accident in New York City, the first tower had been struck. Time, if you remember, people were characterizing it as an accident. It wasn't until the second plane, 18 minutes later, struck the second tower that we became riveted to the television. Around 9.30, someone told me I had a call. So I walked down to my desk, was on the telephone, and about five minutes later, I felt literally this stop. I mean, this is a concrete building, and it was almost as if there was a thump. Then I heard a loud explosion, and as I looked out my window, which faced the interior of the Pentagon, I saw this massive fireball fired, followed by black, thick smoke. You know, it was odd that myself especially, but others in the room, we never made the connection that what I was seeing was tied at all to the TV images we had just been watching from New York City. Strange how you don't make, your mind doesn't make that connection. Before I continue, let me describe to you what the Pentagon is and how it is physically. So obviously, five sides. What people don't know is the five sides of the Pentagon actually then have five concentric rings. And the rings end at a center courtyard with trees and grass and what have you. So five sides, five rings. 
10 corridors like a spoke. In fact, it's been estimated that it's 18 miles a corridor in the entire building. So there are five floors above ground, two floors below ground. And what happened with American Airlines Flight 77 is that it hit the side of the Pentagon facing South Washington Boulevard. And in doing so, it impacted the building literally on the first floor. I mean, he literally drove it into almost the ground, but he impacted the first floor. The force of the plane from the black box, it was estimated that the plane was going about 550 miles an hour. The force of the plane and the momentum actually cut through the E-ring, the D-ring, and the C-ring, and literally like a hot knife through butter, cut through all three rings, and the nose rested against the innermost second ring. Quick sidebar, our administrative assistant had a dentist appointment that morning. And as she was driving on South Washington Boulevard coming to work, she sees the plane actually flying over her car as she's driving. And the next thing she knows, she sees the fireball in her rear view mirror. Very freaky. So a few minutes after the explosion, the PA system goes off and they're announcing that the building should be evacuated. Now this is what I find amazing. 23,000 people. 23,000. Honest to goodness, it was the most orderly, expedient evacuation I've ever experienced. There was no pushing, there was no shoving, yelling, an orderly exit from the building. I ended up in the South Parking, which is the one facing or next to uh, 395. And we were held there while the other side of the building is just literally flames and black smoke. What was odd is that we were kept there, and then about 30 minutes after we're standing there, again, not knowing, making the connection, the police said, quickly go under the highway through the underpass and stay on the other side of 395 because at the time, the fourth plane was unknown as to what its intentions were. So if you can imagine, they moved on that side, it was about half the building. Moving 12,000 people over the other side of 395 through the underpasses. And they declared the entire Pentagon a crime scene. So we weren't allowed to come back to our cars. Cell phones did not work. All you got was a busy signal. Traffic was completely shut down. 395, Army Navy Drive, everywhere around it, it was just shut down. Nobody was moving. Metro stopped operating. Couldn't get to my car. And so, what did I do? I decided to walk home. 10 miles. Not even thinking that I should call. You know, I was almost, I'm not sure if it was a combination of being numb or being focused, but you would have thought I would have just stopped somewhere, made the call. But instead, I trudged on to get home, to be with my wife and children. And it wasn't until 2 p.m. that I got home. She'll tell you about that. But before I let Nancy tell her side of the story, let me interject to you two things. Call it fortuitous. I like to think this is God's providence working in what may seem to be an unnatural way. No one knows why the terrorists chose that side of the Pentagon among the five sides. And that's important because in order to get to that side, if you see the track that the FAA did of the plane, the pilot, the terrorist, actually had to do literally a 330-degree turn in a tight circle. Now, I'm not a pilot, but my pilot friends in the Air Force say that is a difficult move. But nonetheless, he makes this 330-degree turn, literally turning the plane completely around, to line up with the Washington Boulevard side of the building. 
Had he hit any of the other four sides, instead of 125 people dying, it would have been 4,000 plus. Because the difference on that side of the building was that it had been renovated for the previous two years. People were just moving back into their spaces three weeks before 9-11. And so the building was, that side of the building was sparsely occupied. So that's number one. Why he chose that side, again, provident, providence from the standpoint, only 125 died versus what could have been 4,000 plus on any of the other four sides. The other thing was, that's also unknown is that the passenger loads for all four flights that day were 20 to 30% of what they normally are. Think about that. For whatever reason, all four flights were sparsely occupied by passengers that day. So instead of 64 that died, that would have died that day, it would have been over 600 had they been at or close to capacity. Sadly, uh, we lost three friends, uh, Army friends that day. Uh, and again, you know, for those of you that were close to it, either New York City, having friends, you know, it's still a hurtful day for us. And Nancy will tell you about one of our friends. Okay, so 9-11 for me, whoa, <laughs> began, so I, I used to homeschool our four children, and at that time I was homeschooling all four of them, so I was down in the basement with them in our classrooms, and the older two were doing some independent work, and I was teaching the twins at the time they were in fifth grade, and so doing a lesson, and so we're well into to school, and the phone rang. So I went and answered it. It was one of my really good friends. And so I said, well, she, and she knew I homeschooled, so I wondered why she was calling me. And so I, I said, hi, Julie. And she, her voice was just, just really shaking. And I said, Julie, well, what's wrong? And she said, Nancy, did Kelly go to work today? And I said, yes. And she said, don't you know what just happened? And I said, Julie, I'm down at the basement doing homeschooling. So anyway, she said, you might want to go turn on the TV, you might want to try to call Kelly. So I called the kids together, we went upstairs, turned on the TV, and of course, you can imagine how shocked I was to see the Twin Towers and then to see uh, what had just happened with the Pentagon. So I quickly ran to the phone, and I called Kelly, only to get a busy signal. So, you know, <laughs> For me, 9-11 was one of the worst days ever. It really was. Um, just the not knowing, you know, when you're trying to get a hold of your loved one, and not knowing, is he, is he safe, is he not? Um, what's going on with him? So we just, we were riveted to the TV, just kind of keeping tabs of what was going on throughout the day. And then we did what we knew was the best thing to do at that time, which was pray. So we, we just kept praying throughout the day, praying for Kelly's safety, for all the souls that were lost, for the family members that were going to have to deal with all that. And then just, you know, just kept praying that, that God was going to bring them home. So um, we sat there a lot. Oh, literally, I mean, I can remember that day like it was yesterday. I just remember just shaking. I just I couldn't stop shaking because I didn't know my best friend, the love of my life, was dead. So um, you can only imagine the indescribable happiness and joy when the doorbell rang and I went to the door and there he stood. And of course we just, you know, just embraced the kids are like, daddy, daddy, you know. And so we were very, very grateful to God um, that Kelly life was spared that day. But like Kelly mentioned, we did have some friends that lost their life that day. Um, a very good friend um, that we had just had lunch with him and his wife two weeks prior to that. Cole Cogan was his name. And he and his wife had got married later in life. They were in their 30s. Had never really found the one of them. Met each other, fell in love, and had just been married two years. So we had, like I mentioned, we went to lunch. We toured the Capitol Dome with them. And just really had a wonderful day. All day to find two weeks later that he was still when the thing that could depend on. 
So, you know, I will say that in hindsight, which is always, as you all know, 2020, but it proved to us that men and women are wired differently. Don't listen to the psychologists or the mumbo jumbo. We are wired differently. For me, it was about the mission. It was about getting home to my family, to be with my family. Tunnel vision. To her, it was, why did you call? Why did you think to relieve? And so, you know, it's just, it was funny, not funny, but funny now, but it just showed us that we're wired differently as men and women. To me, it was complete the mission. To her, it was feel it, do something about it, and you should have called. Okay, now to read from the Catechism again. God created this world in a state of journey. The more perfect exists alongside the less perfect, physical good will always be mixed with physical evil until creation reaches perfection. In the case of moral evil, God never causes it, either directly or indirectly. But since his creatures can freely choose to go astray, he permits moral evil because he respects people's freedom and knows how to draw good out of evil. St. Augustine wrote that God would never allow any evil if he could not cause good to emerge from it. So this is proven in the fact that he used Jesus' death, the greatest moral evil, for our salvation. You know, when you think about that, you know, we, we always question, you, you know, a lot of our now Catholic friends will say, well, if God really cared and loved mankind, he wouldn't allow Hurricane Irma to take life. He wouldn't allow genocide to happen in Rwanda. But if that were the case, then as Nancy said, God would not have offered his son and allowed his son to be subjected to the ultimate moral indignity, evil indignity. And so it's hard for us to grasp and put our mind around it, except to realize that he does have a purpose. And that, like St. Augustine said, he will draw good, despite what we may think, good out of every evil. So in the aftermath of 9-11, there was goodwill and there's charity, not only in the United States, but throughout the world. It was manifested in countless ways. We had national unity, and our nation's resolve and resiliency was never greater than the aftermath of that fateful day. People turned to patriotism, and they sought the comfort of their faith. And I mean, I remember at our own church, all of a sudden the numbers grew. More people started coming to church. You would hear people talk about praying. You'd see people helping each other and truly caring about their fellow man. If only we could just take a part of that today, we'd easily overcome the vitriol and divisiveness that we have our world today. We're going back to the catechism. It takes time to see how God draws good from a moral evil. It takes time to see how God draws good out of a moral evil. So the vignette about Joseph and Clara Gant for us is a testimony to this particular aspect of God's providence. So the organization I worked for back then and now I'm back at, our mission is to search for, recover, and identify the remains of service members who lost their life in World War II through the present. So in July 2013, I was privileged to tell a 93-year-old widow that we had identified her husband who went missing in North Korea in 1950. So Joseph Gant enlisted in the United States Army in 1942. And he served in World War II in the Pacific. In 1946, on a train that was taking him and his unit from Texas up to Seattle, he meets a young lady, Clara. Clara was on her way back to her home in Los Angeles. They strike up a conversation. 
but it doesn't last very long because she, he, he disembarks in California and he goes off. But wouldn't you know that although they parted ways in California, had only known each other during this chance meeting for a few hours, Joseph pursued Clara hard. Hard. He called, he wrote, all for the purpose of furthering their relationship. Clara, on the other hand, thought, I'm not getting involved with an army guy. I'm not getting involved with a guy who thinks, you know, he's going to take advantage of me. I'm an upstanding young lady. And so she rebuffed him for over a year. Finally, she agrees. And they began a long-distance relationship. That resulted in their marriage in December of 1948. And they settled on the Army base right outside of Seattle. According to Clara, Joseph loved the Army. And six months after they were married, Joseph ships off to Korea to fight in the Korean War. He was one of the, his unit was one of the first ones in the Korean War. Clara bought a house in Los Angeles. She hired a gardener because to her, she wanted to make sure that the yard would be ready when Joseph returned from the war because she knew he wanted to go fishing. So after a fierce battle in late 1950, Joseph's unit is overrun by superior numbers of Chinese and North Korean forces. He was captured, and in 1951, he was reported as having lost his life in a prisoner of war camp in North Korea. Clara set up a memorial for Joseph in her living room, and she fervently prayed that her husband would one day come home to be buried. So in fast forward, 2006, the North Koreans turned over to the U.S. 208 boxes of remains from the Korean War 50 years earlier. The boxes were highly commingled set of bones. Each box didn't contain a single body. The North Koreans also used formaldehyde, which destroyed the DNA. But after painstaking scientific research and efforts over seven years and advanced DNA techniques, the laboratory began to identify the remains of these 200 sets of bones. So each year, the Department of Defense flies in the Korean War families to a conference here in Crystal City. The purpose of the conference is to provide them updates as to the loss of their loved ones. Clara Gant was a regular attendee at every one of these conferences. However, in 2013, she had some health challenges and her doctor told her, I, I would advise against any kind of travel. Clara told him, I have to go, I need to go, I'm going. So she flies unescorted from Los Angeles to DC. During this meeting, which was in July of 2013, our scientific director gets a call from the laboratory that two days earlier, the scientists had identified the remains, this particular set of remains, as belonging to Joseph King. Tom Hall and I were deeply humbled to be able to tell this 93-year-old widow, Clara, what we had done and that Joseph was coming home to her. So that evening I got to meet Clara. Uh, we had a reception and so I went up to her and she was talking to me and telling me about Joseph. And she said that they were never able to have children um, before he left, before he departed to Korea. And she said that the last thing he said to her was, is Clara, if I don't come back, I want you to remarry. And so I remember Clara just you know, looking at me and, you know, and she said, and you know, she says, but I don't know why he would even tell me that because she said, he was the love of my life and I loved him with all my heart and I could never ever 
Mary. He could be with Mary anyone else. So, so after 63 years, like Kelly mentioned, Joseph was brought back home, brought back to Clara. And I would really suggest that when you guys get home tonight or in the near future, go and Google Clara Gant and spell the name G-A-N-T-T. -T. And on that you will see this video of when they brought back Joseph's remains and she went to go meet the flag Lake Coffin at the LA airport and did Joseph's military burial, which was very touching. taking a shot across the bow every chance people get. Critical of their vices, critical of decisions that they made, how they live. But in actuality, when you read a quote like this, you realize how much the power of their faith was important to them. You realize how much importance they placed on God's central role in their lives, as ordinary as they may be, whether it was bringing them a, a fruitful harvest, whether it was protecting them, guiding their decisions as they began to form the nation. And so you think that, from Nancy and my perspective, their virtues are what should be celebrated. We all have vices. We all regret things we have done in our lives. But when it gets right down to it, we would like to think that we're being judged on the good that we did and our virtues versus on the vices and faults that we have. This is just an example again of how powerful God and faith were to the Founding Fathers. So our last vignette highlights the central role that God's providence played in Nancy and my vocation. So 1982, I know none of you were born back then. I'm sorry, yes, we're old. So in 1982, I'm in my senior year at Georgia Tech. I was graduating with an engineering degree. I also, because I was there on an ROTC scholarship for the Air Force, I had a four-year ROTC commitment, an obligation. I was also 21 years old, and I had no plans, zero, nilch, nada, zero plans to get married until I was over 30. So here I am, spring semester, assignments are coming out from the Air Force. I had given them my dream sheet of what I wanted. I opened up the letter and it's Ala Magordo, New Mexico. I said, where, first of all, I wasn't even sure where New Mexico was. Let alone, where is Ala Magordo? So I looked in the encyclopedia, there's no online, no Wikipedia. I look in the encyclopedia and it's this little tiny town of 25, 30,000 people in the southern desert of New Mexico. So I said, this is crazy. Here I am in Atlanta, big city, enjoying life. The last thing I was going to do was go to Alamogordo, New Mexico. So I called my uh, detailer and I say, I don't want to go. He said, you're going. I said, I don't want to go. I said, you're going. So this goes on for about 10 minutes. Finally, I hang up, started doing some research. I heard that if you joined the Peace Corps, that you could be re released from your obligation 
So I marched down, took a bus down to downtown Atlanta, went to the Peace Corps office, told the lady I was graduating with a degree in civil engineering, that I was ready to join the Peace Corps and serve my country. She gets so excited, she tells me to start filling out this form. I start filling it out, I'm halfway through, she says, so what kind of things do you do at Georgia Tech in your spare time? So I told her I ran track for the team, I you know, sort of involved in the fraternity. And I made the mistake of saying that I'm in ROTC. <laughs> so she stops and she says, ROTC? She says, really? She says, uh, you don't have a commitment for the military? I said, well, yeah, I do. She says, well, how long? I said, four years. And she says, well, what are you doing here? I said, I'm joining the Peace Corps. <laughs> she says, well, why are you doing that? And so I said, well, because I've heard if you join the Peace Corps, you'll be free from your military obligations. Honest oh, goodness, I've never seen a woman turn so red, beat red. She grabs the application, she rips it up, and she basically, she cussed, actually, to basically get out of her office. <laughs> so, I had no choice but to go to Alvarado, New Mexico. Okay, so this is my side. <laughs> so I you know, went to college. I initially started off going to get a business degree. I would have gone for one semester. And then I decided I wanted to be a special education teacher because I wanted to help little children. And uh, my dad was a little disappointed. He really wanted me to get that business degree, but he didn't say too much after that. So I got my degree. When I graduated, my dad had worked for... Mountain Bell at the time, AT&T. So he had always thought that I would work for AT&T. So he said, Nancy, please, will you just go to Denver and will you just interview for a job with AT&T? And if you don't get it, fine, I'll never bug you again. And I said, okay, Dad. So I did. Go to Denver, interview. They offered me a job in San Diego. So now what 21-year-old young lady would not want to go to San Diego? So I had that, and my dream job at the time, teaching job, was to work and teach in Colorado. I loved Colorado back in the 80s. So I interviewed for a job, got offered the job in Colorado. And then I told myself there was no way, no how was I ever going to go back home to Alamogordo. I did not want to go back to my hometown. And so the superintendent of schools of Alamogordo called me and offered me this phenomenal job. So, you know, you have to ask yourself, so why would I turn down San Diego and then got offered the job in Colorado? Why in the world did I take Alamogordo, New Mexico? But I did. I prayed about it, and, and I just, just kept going back, you know, take this job. So I, so I took the job. So I go back to Alamogordo, and... How many months afterwards? We'll get the rest. Oh. <laughs> okay, so I took the job in Alamogordo. So when we were introduced by a couple who knew us, Nancy uh, was a CCD teacher. They were the, the religious education directors. She sang in the church choir. I played on the softball team with him, and I babysat their two girls. So when they introduced us, it was based upon limited views technical difficulties. Better. So, yeah, can you still hear us? Nope. Yeah, yeah. So when they introduced us, they were making the premise based upon a rather limited view of what they thought we were about, like. But you know what was odd is that here's a small town, only two parishes in the entire small town. We happened to go to the same parish, St. Jude's. But for eight months, after I had arrived, until we were first met, eight months, we never noticed each other. I can't even tell you that I even paid attention to this girl that supposedly sang in the church choir. You don't go to my mass. Oh. <laughs> eight months, we never noticed each other. Which we find off. So, um, at the time, I was a special education teacher and I taught on the base that Kelly was assigned to. So when we started dating, we would go to mass, and then we would brown bag the last half hour, and um, just spend that time just talking and getting to know one another. 
so that really proved to be a cornerstone in our relationship later on. But after dating for five months, the wonderful Air Force decided to send Kelly, give him an assignment to the Azores, these little islands in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, far, far away from New Mexico. And um, he was going to be gone for 15 months. And so back in the day, there was no emails, no texting, no Skyping, letters and cards took 10 to 14 days to cross the ocean. And we had once a month calls. Now when you think about that, most people wouldn't be able to survive that kind of a, a separation with, with those kinds of circumstances. But Kelly and I were really, we're really convicted in our relationship. And then he's going to share with you Before I do, so I called after I got this assignment. Same guy, the detailer. <laughs> and I said, I don't want to go. He says, what do you mean you want to go? I said, I don't want to go. He says, aren't you the same guy that told me you didn't want to go to Alamogordo? I said, yeah, but that was eight months ago. He said, you're going. Well, obviously I knew the Peace Corps answer, right? So I went. So anyways, Nancy said, you know, when you're put into a situation, when you're convicted to something, especially when it's a relationship, you tend to be more focused and you tend to be more resourceful. So Nancy said, we had one call a month. That was it, five minutes. Five minutes? So you had to call an operator, give her the number, and she would place the call. So. One month after I get there, I'm ready to make my call. Parents, Hawaii, new girlfriend. Sorry, mom and dad. So I, I place the call. Nancy, we connect, chatting, catching up. How do you pay attention to the time? Click. I even told her I loved her, I missed her, I didn't tell her any of that. I live with a guy in the Navy, and he said the same thing about four days later, girlfriend in Florida, same thing. So we said, this ain't gonna work. 14 more months of this. We found out where the operators were. <laughs> so we knock on the door, nothing. Pound on the door, nothing. Pound really hard. Door opens a little crack. Little girl, lady. And she says, in broken English, Portuguese, you're not allowed to be here, go away. We had bought pizza. <laughs> and so, so we pointed to the pizza, pointed to her, her eyes got big. She says, come in. <laughs> I remember the story like it was yesterday. So her name was Lourdes, her colleague was uh, uh, Rosa. And it was just like, you see the old Mayberry RFD television shows? Huge switchboard, wires coming out, she's got a headset on, they both did. And their phone rings, she plugs, pulls out, plugs, pulls out. We chatted with them. Stayed with them for 40 minutes. They wolfed down that pizza. We must have repeated our names 75 times. <laughs> Bill Kelly, Bill Kelly. One month passes, I'm up first. Hey, Lourdes, how are you? Hey, Kelly, thank you again for the pizza. We really enjoyed getting to know you and Bill. We chatted, pleasantries. Who would you like to call? She dials it up, make a connection. We're talking, catching up over the last month. I'm watching the telephone, five minutes, 10 minutes. <laughs> 15 minutes. <laughs> Finally at 20, I say to Nancy, I said, I don't want to abuse this. We'll talk next month. Now, that wasn't as important as what were, what transpired 10 months down the line. In that particular call, this is in November, I called and she's cold, cool, distant. And for 
literally, that call lasted a hard seven minutes. It was just difficult. She didn't want to talk. Didn't have anything to say, just icy. So we hang out, say I love you, miss you. This is strange. So I called Mortis back the next day, because it just bugged me. And I said, Mortis, I apologize. I said, I know I you placed a call for me yesterday. Can you place another call? She said, sure. So I called her sister. And I said, hey, I had this call with your sister last night, and it didn't go well. And there's dead silence on the line. And I said, you can be frank with me. I said, what, what, what's happening? And she said, oh. She said, well, uh, whole boyfriend is back on the scene. I said, oh, who's that? So she says, <laughs> so the old boyfriend. So, okay, I, I told you I'm not uh, a pilot, I'm an engineer. Well, the old boyfriend happens to be an F-15 fighter pilot, which back in the 80s was like the F-22 of the Air Force. This guy was good looking. He was a nice guy, I knew him. He was a fighter pilot. Well, he comes back onto the scene and he says, starts chirping in her ear, well, has he asked you to marry him? Well, has he said anything about commitment? Why is he waiting so long? So, just to say, she starts thinking. So I told her, her sister, I said, look, I said, I already bought the ring two months before. I said, I intend to propose. I said, whatever you do, you need to protect my interests. She said, yeah. understand and wrap our mind around it. So clearly, back in 1982, for both our careers and our vocations, Nancy and I were thinking purely in human terms. 
or in my case, I wasn't thinking at all. But we know that if not for God's providence and our trusting in that providence, we put our trust in it, we would not be in front of you today, clearly. So last Friday was the Blessed Mother's Nativity, and she is really the perfect example of providence manifested to perfection. Throughout her life, she of purity, humility, faith, trust, obedience. She was constantly attentive to God, open to His signs of presence in her life, and receptive to God's plan, not her own plan. Fortunately for Kelly and I, we were very open to God's will and His plan for our life. So St. Francis de Sales said it best. And all your affairs lean solely on God's providence, by means of which alone your plans can succeed. Meanwhile, on your part, work on in quiet cooperation with Him, and then rest satisfied that if you have trusted entirely to Him, you will always obtain such a measure of success as is most profitable for you whether it seems so or not, to your own individual judgment. So for those of you that aren't too good at public math, my plan to get married well after 30, I missed it by eight years. <laughs> I'll just tell you that. And my plan to, to marry and meet a tall, dark, handsome man worked <laughs> You know, I always tell her that the only one, I, that I only satisfied one of the three criteria, but, and that's a tall piece. <laughs> so in the midst of our 33-year vocation, Nancy and I realized that it's still a journey. And it's a journey that requires conviction and commitment on a daily basis. That if we're not convicted, if we're not committed, and strive to be that way daily, we will fall short in our vocation. We know that our vocation is far beyond the physical, far beyond the romantic. What it is is an unconditional acceptance of each other, a daily appreciation of the other, a purposeful desire to be united with each other, and above all, is to be in perfect union with our God. We offer this timeless advice from St. Augustine. Order your soul, reduce your wants, live in charity, associate in Christian community, obey the law, and trust in providence. May our Lord bless each and every one of you abundantly, and may his grace and his providence shape, guide, and inspire both you and your vocation. God bless you. Saving 25 lives by going into the burning building 
filled with black, thick smoke. And if you talk to people that were in there that survived, they'll tell you it was like dark as all get out. They couldn't literally see the hand in front of them. The, the smoke was thick, it was poisonous, fuel, they were choking, and they just couldn't see. But Isaac would go in there, fighting fire and flame, and literally guide 25 people to safety. When you hear a story like that, not only that, but you know the person and the character of the person, then it fits. Then you understand why that happened and what instrument he played in God's providence. Because those 25 people, you know, by the way, five years after the anniversary, all 25 got together. They were all 25 were employees of the Pentagon and bought lunch and a cake and had a celebration with Isaac. To this day, he still works for the Pentagon. He's got a new dog named Pico. <laughs> Just a great guy. But we see that Isaac was God's instrument of good that day, a day of evil. Very inspiring. Anybody else? So, uh, sounds like when you guys were dating and throughout your whole life together, you know, you've always had a, a religious relationship where God came first for you guys. Um, in relationships I've had in, in friends, family, you know, not everyone's on the same level as, as their partner. Um, whether that be, that be you know, where the level is with their religion or uh, their same beliefs. Uh, even in the same faith. Did you guys experience that? How did you guys deal with those little or large difficulties? You know, so I grew up in a Catholic family. Uh, my parents were generous enough to send me to Catholic grade school and an all-boys Catholic high school. But, you know, we didn't have an extraordinary Catholic upbringing. I didn't. You know, we were faithful and going to Sunday Mass, but Honest to goodness, I don't remember ever praying the rosary growing up. I don't remember going to adoration, you know, other than at school, because the nuns made you. <laughs> but, you know, other than that, I don't remember my parents and the example that they set. Now, that's not to criticize them. They were very good people, but they just didn't know any better. You know, the diocese of Honolulu has never been that great, and it wasn't back then. So, here I go to a... Uh, secular school in this uh, Bible Belt. Uh, we had a Catholic center, but it was in a little tiny house. Uh, Catholics made up, I think, 25% of the student body. But I'll tell you, I, and I don't know why this happened, how it happened, because I never went to daily mass other than when the nuns made us. I would go to daily mass at Georgia Tech. And what I'm most proud of, it's not the degree in engineering that I had, not the track awards that I got, but the fact that I never missed a Sunday Mass, ever. Now that's, in my view, that's a huge accomplishment because being in fraternity, and there was a wild late night Saturday nights. <laughs> but I never missed a Sunday Mass. You know, and I dated in college. Uh, I don't think I ever dated a Catholic girl because at the time, if you were to tell me was it important to get married to you know, a woman of my same faith? I would have said, absolutely not. It would not have been a high criteria. But again, thinking in human terms, I was falling way short. And so, even when I met Nancy, you know, it was great that she was Catholic, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, as she mentioned, when we first started dating, thank God, thank God, God for her, she said, hey, why don't we go to daily mass? Well, I had already been going to daily mass, so for me it was, yeah, that's a great thing. And I think that set the tone and the foundation and seeds for our relationship. Do you want to talk about your upbringing? Yeah, so I grew up in a very large family, and my parents were, faith was very important to them. And every Saturday, almost every Saturday, my dad would gather all of us in the family room, and he would sit us all down, and he would pick some aspect of our faith, and he would talk about it with us. 
So, you know, I just thought that everybody grew up in a family like that where you know, the faith was readily shared with them. I'll need to find out later that no, that wasn't the case. And I just, you know, I thank my, my dad for doing that. And, and on the other hand, thank my mom for being such a prayer warrior uh, for our family. You know, whenever we couldn't find mom, at one point in our lives, all eight of us would discover that the times we couldn't find her, she was in the bedroom, kneeling on by the side of her bed, praying for us. And so our faith was, was, was just always front and center. Um, they made it so that it was something we enjoyed. It was just part of our life. Um, we did pray the rosary every day. And I did go through a period in my life when I was a teenager where I thought, what does dad know? Why do I need to pray the rosary? And I remember going to him one time, and I still to this day, I don't know how I got enough, enough nerve to go to him and say, daddy, I'm not going to go tonight to pray the rosary. And he just looked at me. And he said, okay. And uh, I said, I've got something else I've got to do. And he said, okay. He said, well, you know where we're going to be. And if you ever want to come back, you're welcome. And then he turned away, and I'm like, oh, that was easy. I'm like, yeah. So for three days, I sat in my room, and the thing that I had to do that was more important than going to play the rosary was talking to my friends on the phone. So for the first two days, I did. The third day, I could hear their voices through the vent. And I remember sitting on the bed thinking, Nancy, what the heck are you doing? So I went in there, and not one of them looked up. Not one of them said a thing. Sat down. I started praying the rosary, and to this day, I just thank my mom and dad for setting that example. Because when I went to college, and you know, you always go through tough times, you know, through your life. Whenever I would hit those bumps in the road, the thing I always pulled out that I was so familiar with is my rosary, and that kind of just kept me strong, kept me on the right path. And then, you know, and I, on the other hand, my dad used to always say. You know, you need to you need to bury someone of the same faith. It would be so you know, it would just be very important for you to do that. But I said, but Daddy, there's no no Catholic men around. And I had never dated but most of them were not Catholic. And I never really understood what my dad meant about how important, you know, being on the same page in your faith was until I met Kelly. And um, and, and we both kind of, you know, you kind of grow, and we always tell when we do these conferences for the engaged, we always tell couples that, you know, think of it you know, like an arch in a triangle. So here's God, here's me, here's Kelly. And the closer we grow to God, the closer we become together. So that's always been just important to us, and we've always tried to continually try to find ways to, to keep our faith um, where it's integral to both of us. And, and, and it, it's worked out well for us. And like one thing, I'll show one thing that we do. Every night before we go to bed, we pray together. And we always will also share with, the, with each other, like he'll share what's on his heart, what he wants to pray for, I'll share what's on my heart. And it's really good when you can really open up with your, your loved one and share those things so you know what's important to them. So that's really been very good and very critical for our parents. But you won't be on the same, at the same level. Um, and you don't have to be. You know, I wasn't. She clearly had a superior Catholic upbringing to me. But I was in the game, doing a little bit, staying close to God, being obedient, such that when I meet the vessel, she, <laughs> she literally lifts me up. Now, despite that fact, what we all have going for us, even if we're on a planes that are highly separated, what we have going for us is that the ground truth of our Catholic faith is all you need to worry about. It's all you need to know because that in of itself will help the other to recognize why they need to elevate the plane that they're on. And you'll help each other through that. And I remember we had some very good friends uh, at our parish in St. Rita. And, you know, they were good people. He was devout. She was, she was an atheist. Flat out, she'd tell you, I don't believe in God. But you know what? Every Sunday, she was there. When they had children, every Sunday she was there. It wasn't until 
11 years later, that she goes to the pastor and she says, I'd like to enroll in RCIA. I don't know if you all know Father Marcus Pollard. He's, he used to be at St. Louis. He was at St. Teresa. A great guy, great priest. Uh, he's now the chaplain at Christendom. Father Pollard was teaching RCIA. To this day, he'll tell you, Julie Ames ran him through the ringer. <laughs> Thank God Father Pollard has an insightful, incisive, razor-sharp mind. He would go to their house, and literally, she would be paying them with questions for, well, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning. Through the whole RCIA year, RCIA year, and to this day, she has a radio program on for Catholic faith. You know, and so again, the mystery of God's providence, the mystery is, is such that our faith is so enriching, our faith is so powerful, that literally it speaks for itself. And if people would just open themselves just up a little, people that are down here, they'll get there. But if you're up here, like she was for me, got to be that encourager to pull them gently, not shove it down their throat, pull them up gently to where you're both in the same plane. And it's a constant journey. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Uh, you mentioned in your talk uh, before your separation, when you went to the Azores, um, one of the reasons you were able to be so resourceful in your communication was that you were convicted that this was a good relationship. Why were you so convicted? What, how did you know? You know, I go back to that, those little seeds that we were planting, daily mass, praying the rosary together. You know, we didn't know why we were doing it, but it, it seemed like a good thing to do in our in the infancy of our relationship. And I just knew she, she was, it was different for me. It was different than any other relationship I had had. There was just something about her that, again, it wasn't my mind or my heart convincing me. I think it was God's hand. It's prodding, tapping me on the shoulder, Holy Spirit, that opening my eyes, opening my ears to what gift I had in front of me. And after dating only five months, I remember this distinctly. So we met in April. July, I get the letter from the Air Force. Thank you. <laughs> and so she had, it was a end of year uh, CCD dinner for the teachers that Tim and Sandy had put on. And she invited me, so we went, and you know, I had just gotten the letter that day, and I wasn't sure how I was going to tell her. Because I had the conversation with the dude already, and he said, you're going, okay, got it. And so that night, I said, can we go to the park? We went to the park, and then So during the night, you know, I, I, I noticed there was something different about it, and I just sensed that something was up. And so I said, you know, okay, I thought maybe we just had a bad day at work. And so we went to the park, and we, we were sitting there, and he looked at me, and he just had the saddest look on his face. And he said, Nancy, I got orders. You know, maybe it'll be Luke Air Force Base or Laporte Air Force Base, someplace close. And I said, where? And he said, the Azores. And I just remember looking at him going, the Azores? Where the heck is the Azores? <laughs> and then when he told me, I, I just I just started crying. And then he started crying. And, and, and so I have to tell you, when I went home that night, you know, I had prayed that, that God would send me this tall, dark, handsome man. And he did. And I fell in love with him. And then God was going to take him away. And I didn't understand that at all. And I just said, you know, God, how, how in the world could you do something like this? And, um, and who knows why we had to go through that. But we both, we both knew that um, we really loved each other and we felt that it was right. But we also knew that 15 months was going to be a long time. So when we left each other, we said, well, it's meant to be. If God's hand is in all this, and 
we're supposed to stay together, we will. And if we don't, then it must have meant that we want to but still thinking in human terms, at least in my case, I thought five months too early to propose. We weren't, I wasn't ready to make that commitment yet. But I knew I loved her, and I knew I was convicted in the relationship, but not to the point of saying, you know, will you wait for me, will you marry me? But like Nancy said, we just turned it over to God, hoping that it would work. But I'll tell you how I really became convicted. So, my friends, decided to throw me a going away party before I left. I was at the back door saloon, tiny Alvarado. <laughs> and uh, we were doing shots at the field. <laughs> and so here's my little girlfriend who went there, who went to the party with me, and you know, people are just buying me shots galore. And I'm, wouldn't you know, little five foot four, five foot four, you know, 108 pound Nancy Antrim is keeping up with me. <laughs> That's the night I knew she was. I lost out, but honest to goodness, I did not lose count of the fact that she kept up every. <laughs> Any other questions? <laughs> so, again, it's a blessing for us to have shared the evening with you. I hope you understood that on this fateful day in our nation's history, uh, yes, God had a purpose. We'll never know fully what that purpose was. But as we said to you, from every moral evil, physical evil, God always draws good out of it. You know, as Nancy said, unfortunately, the lessons of 9/11 were not do not have not sustained themselves. You know, we're as divided, if not more so, than we've ever been. We're as divisive as more so than we've ever been. And so, when are we, as human beings, going to realize that being unified with God? trusting his providence, our lives will be so much easier, so much better as we wait on this journey. Because all this, keep in mind, providence is a state of journey. God could have made the most perfect world for us. He did for our ancestors, Adam and Eve. That was perfection. It was their free will, exercise of free will, that caused that perfection to be radically altered, and if not for his son experiencing the ultimate moral evil, who knows where we would be today. But that salvation, that promise of salvation, is why we all are blessed, richly blessed. To be in this diocese, to have programs, that's theology on tap, which I never had growing up, or even as a young adult, is absolutely priceless. Because we realize how rich our Catholic faith is, and again, that incredible role that God plays in it. So again, God bless you on you. God bless you and your vocation. And we wish you many of God's abundant grace. Thanks. Give them one more round of applause.